If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's. Tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. I think it plays into the idea of the, the white fragility. We break down the white replacement theory and what that means for the culture. We're in this pivotal stage in our democratic process. Then, those who picked cotton created the very basic wealth of this nation. Black America's take on reparations and what does that look like in 2022? We need to be able to pass along generational wealth. Plus... Oh, no, please, spoil it. Let them know what you saw and how incredible it was. I'm with Mr. Entertainment as Usher makes another Sin City takeover. And Jay-Z's Rock Nation social justice initiative for Black America. All that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now. Mr. Entertainment rolls back into Las Vegas and Hove and his social justice warriors are stirring the pot. What's up, everyone? I'm Kennedy Rue. Welcome to the show. And I'm special correspondent Rochelle Ritchie. We'll get to all that in a bit, but we're starting with the threat of the white replacement theory, one that claims that as the black population grows, the white population will disappear. Now, it's been used by white racist tropes to carry out violent attacks on black and brown people across America. But is it a legitimate concern or another fear-mongering tactic for political gain. That's tonight's top story. This is a purposeful resettlement. White replacement theory. No, no, no. This is a voting rights question. It's going to be millions of illegal yes. immigrants yes. into the United States. Known as the Great Replacement Theory, the hateful notion disseminated across right-wing media argues that there is a conspiracy among Democrats to replace the political standing of white Americans with immigrants who will vote blue. Unfortunately, we're putting out this information as, as if it's, it's fact, and which we all know that it's not. Um, it's just, uh, it plays into the fears um, of of white Americans. The theory has since gained significant traction thanks to media personalities like Tucker Carlson, who's referenced it on his show in more than 400 episodes. Our country's being invaded by the rest of the world. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists. We've always seen this type of white rage. We're seeing it manifested in this era more so uh, because Donald Trump has given rise to the white victimization. Such beliefs have instigated extreme violence against marginalized groups. From the deadly 2017 Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, to multiple mass shootings like the one in Pittsburgh that targeted Jews at their place of worship. And in New Zealand, which targeted Muslims, El Paso, which targeted Hispanics, and in Buffalo, which targeted black Americans. My mother was Pearl Young who was massacred, murdered, and killed on May 14th by a angry person 
believing the replacement theory. And also, I'll tell you what great replacement theory should be. We should replace all these people peddling hate and making financial yeah. and political gain from spreading racism. We should replace them with people who hold up American values. Words of resistance and actions against it have come from progressive media. Republican Liz Cheney, who called out GOP leadership on Twitter, and some Democrats with the House passing Resolution 1152 condemning the replacement theory. This uh, great replacement conspiracy theory is harmful to our country. It endangers our people. It weakens our country and is a threat to our democracy. Even though whites will be a permanent minority, white supremacy still will control the democracy. White supremacy doesn't die, it evolves. We'll murder you. We will kill you because we're full of hate. We want to make America hate again. But so much more must be done by all of us if we are to counter the hate that encourages division, anger, and violence. We have to keep just speaking truth to power. We need to make sure that we are holding people accountable, uh, not just the perpetrators of the crimes, uh, but also those who, who peddle this information and push out this information as well. Here to join me for more on this story are Gen Z historian Khalil Green, recent graduate of Yale University and social media personality and comedian Free Blanche. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Let's get right into this. Blanche, I want to start with you. Has the white replacement theory proven to be a threat to the black community? I would say yes, in the sense that um, what immigration, illegal immigration, to me does to the black community, it takes away jobs from particularly black men. Hmm. And so the numbers show that it affects our employment drastically to the point where the lower wages actually puts us out of competition for jobs because most of us are in the uh, service industry or service sectors of the population. So I would say in that sense, it affects us economically more. Now, what, what do you say to the fact that the white replacement theory is basically this fear that there are policies being put in place politically that are going to erase white people, and that's a threat to our country? I don't think anything is going to erase white people, but I do believe that um, there is something intentional um, with wanting um, immigrants to come over here at, at this rate. If I was a president and I wanted more votes, to me, I would do it. You know, let everybody come in that would vote for me. Because you think about it, if I can just walk across the border and have a better life, then I'd probably vote for that president or that party. Khalil, give me your thoughts on, you know, what you hear Blanche saying. When you look at events like what happened in Buffalo, New York, you see that the Great Replacement or the White Replacement Theory is a threat to black lives through violence, but also through policy. Um, I believe Blanche is saying that immigrants, by and large, come here and vote one way. But what we see is that actually a lot of Latino voters both uh, vote Republican and Democrat, with a large cohort showing out for, for Trump specifically. So I don't think there's any political advantage, by and large, um, with letting in immigrant voters. And this really dispels the myth that's at the root of the white replacement theory. And instead, the white replacement theory is often used as a way for racist people to target black and other non-white groups. What do you think about that? Do you think it's being used as a target? I mean, you think about what happened in Buffalo. The shooter in that case wrote in his manifesto about the replacement theory, which was behind the, you know, barbaric reasoning for the murder of all those people. Yeah, well, I would say that if that was a real thing, then 
it seemed like they'd be targeting Hispanics. Hispanics are the number one minority population in the United States. So to me, if that was a threat as far as replacement, the Hispanics are growing at rapid numbers, more than white, black, and even Asian. And another thing is the Asian community pretty much um, is on the same level or outpaces white America. So to me, the greatest threats for a quote-unquote white replacement would be the Asian community and the Hispanic community. Um, we have incidents of racism that happen, but I don't think it's just necessarily a, a pure threat to black people. Khalil? Well, when you look at the origins of replacement theory, you see that it's often rooted in the ideas of the threat of Negro rule, which is when, after slavery, black people were gaining political power, and in retaliation, white people would make up this idea that they were replacing the white race in order to enact violence. And you see this with something like the Wilmington insurrection, where white people literally overthrew the government hmm. when black politicians started to win elections. So when you look at how that evolves until today, it's not just black people being targeted. America is a lot more diverse now. There was the El Paso, Texas shooting, right. where white supremacists did attack Latinos. Um, but you also see that it goes back to its roots every once in a while, where they target black people specifically because the idea that black people and our political rule is a threat to the United States, it still holds true for a lot of white people today. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the, the shooting in El Paso. The guy in that shooting actually said that, you know, Mexicans are taking over and he wanted to kill Mexicans. So, obviously, this isn't just directed at, uh, you know, black people. You also think about what happened in New Zealand, right? You know, that was a Muslim community. So, it's not just black black people that are, that are facing this. If we don't think that the white replacement theory is a real threat, but clearly these shooters and these people that are committing such violent acts towards black people are using it, what is the solution to try and prevent this sort of violence. And I'll start with you first, Blanche. I think you're going to have uh, evil and hateful people in the world, so you really can't prevent anything from happening, because if you take away all the guns, people will use bombs and knives. So mm -hmm. people are going to do things if they have an intent to do them. Um, do I think it's an actual threat, per se? I would say no. Like, nobody looked at how many people died in Buffalo before the shooting or after. How many folks got victims of homicide in Buffalo before or after. Nobody cares. But you have to think about that's right. We're talking about racism, acts of racism, not your everyday sort of unfortunate street violence. Khalil, let me get your response to that. I think the question is, in terms of solving it, how can we better educate young people, especially those who are... Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Not often the targets of sort of racial justice efforts, which are young white men. Um, not that anyone, especially people of color, need to go out of our way, but it's up to white politicians and white educators to teach other white people about these racist ideas, and especially to target them while they're young, because a lot of the shooters in the most recent cases have been teenagers or people who are young adults. Um, so we have to get them re-educated, start to weed out racism from our school system so they can easily catch on to these ideas as it comes up in their head and hopefully stop themselves before they go out and take it out on someone else. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you hear some of that when it comes to the talk about critical race theory that a lot of people are pushing for in our schools. Free, Blanche, and Khalil, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us here on Revolt Black News Weekly. Moving on to the legal headlines, including a major victory for NBA Youngboy. His case tops our gavel-to-gavel -gavel coverage of who's caught in the system. Not guilty! NBA Youngboy was found not guilty 
bringing an end to one of the two federal gun trials he had been facing. The gun possession charge stemmed from Youngboy's March 2021 arrest on a separate federal gun possession warrant from an earlier incident in the rapper's home state of Louisiana. This is interesting because it's a federal case, right? So, you know, the, the feds, they got a 96% conviction rate. So I know they was feeling some type of way <laughs> when this was over with. But so the judge ruled that his lyrics cannot be used against him because they were prejudicial. It doesn't help prove their case. And the judge agreed, so they threw that out. And so shout out to uh, Youngboy for that one because on the hair, yo, chinny, chin, chin. 19-year-old Peyton Gendron has pled not guilty to federal hate crimes connected to the vicious mass shooting at a Buffalo, New York grocery store. With 27 federal hate crime charges, he could be sentenced to death. You kill all those people, you will go to jail, right? Even if he pleads guilty, eventually changes his plea, he may try to avoid the death penalty, but he is going to jail. Gendron is accused of killing multiple people at the Topps supermarket, where he opened fire on black shoppers and store employees because of their race. This Buffalo shooter specifically targeted African-American community. He went out of his way, which is why he is being charged with federal charges. When it comes to the courts and it comes to the law, there is no negating what he did, right? You wrote a whole manifesto. You had a whole plan book written out. You were captured with your weapons and things of that nature. And we will continue to stay on top of these cases. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I don't know what y'all say, man, but I ain't taking no reparations because as a black man, I got my pride and my dignity. <laughs> you know what? That's bull. You know why? Because you got bills. That is a scene from the 2002 hit movie Barbershop. Welcome back. Now, it's been 20 years, and black Americans are still having the discussion about reparations. Is it a check? Is it property? Or does the culture even care? We explore the two sides to making amends for America's greatest sin and what that looks like in 2022. We as a nation have not yet truly acknowledged and grappled with racism and white supremacy that has tainted this country's founding and continues to persist in those deep racial disparities and inequalities today. An emotional House judiciary hearing in 2019, billions of dollars in reparations to be paid to the descendants of 4 million Africans enslaved in the United States. This hearing is yet another important step in the long and heroic struggle of African-Americans to secure reparations for the damages inflicted by enslavement. Many feel that investments for reparations made in the black community, which would include direct checks as well as funding in education and housing, are not only morally justified, but given the extreme racial wealth gap, an economic imperative. The black-white wealth gap is a consequence of what has occurred over multiple generations, and it amounts to $840,900 on average between a black and white household. And we have to fight to make sure we understand America is a capitalistic system and we have to make sure our children understand that we need to be able to pass along generational wealth so they don't start this life at a deficit. But there are two sides to this debate and 70% of Americans oppose reparations. I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago for whom none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. They need to know that people stand for reparations. You have so many white people coming out saying they are opposed to it, 
Well, they need to see who's for it. Several recent developments suggest the political tide is turning. The passage of H.R. 40, a bill introduced more than 30 years ago and reintroduced in the House in January of 2021 to establish a commission to study reparations, was once thought an impossibility. Missouri Representative Cory Bush makes an emotional case in support of the bill. The violence my family withstood from one generation to the next was not isolated. It was systemic to deny descendants of enslaved people economic and social opportunity. And in California, AB 3121 was signed by Governor Gavin Newsom in 2020, making it the first state to adopt a law to study and develop reparations proposals, which could in turn influence other states to do the same. <laughs> The nine-member committee, which voted in March to tie eligibility to lineage of slaves, released its first comprehensive report of recommendations with the second to follow in 2023. Now we're moving towards the second and final year of our process, which is the development phase, where now the nine-member task force will have intentional and substantive conversations about what the forms of reparations can and should look like in light of all of the evidence we've collected over this past year. In Manhattan Beach, California, nearly 100 years after a black couple's beachfront resort property known as Bruce's Beach was taken away by the city, L.A. County voted unanimously to return control of the land, now worth $20 million, to the family's direct descendants. We're just so, 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 so happy, and it's just so many uh, of the ancestors that I wish were here. And in June, in a landmark case that could open the door for other similar lawsuits, the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled in favor of renowned civil rights attorney Benjamin Crump's argument to bring to trial the case of Tamara Lanier, a descendant of slaves who were stripped naked and photographed by a Harvard professor in 1850 to prove the inferiority of blacks. Lanier is suing Harvard for inflicting emotional distress after they continue to profit from the photos some of the earliest in existence and reportedly valued at $100 million after learning of Lanier's lineage and claim. If we're successful in front of the jury, which I believe we will be, will be the first time that an American institution has had to be held accountable for what it did to our ancestors and make their descendants be able to get something of value from slavery. Here to debate our political commentator, Anthony Brian Logan, and educator, The Consciously. Consciously, I want to start with you first. There's been a lot of political action at the local level towards reparations like this task force that's now in California. But do you think that black people deserve reparations? Most definitely, we deserve reparations, not only for past trials, tribulations, but ongoing trials, tribulations. We know that, you know, we had the uh, war on drugs, the crime bills, the ongoing things that's happened. I was born in 1990, and I would say there's political, social, economic, state-sanctioned violence that I have, you know what I'm saying, uh, experienced that I think that should be, you know, paid back. Slavery ended 1865. It's now 2022. We're still having the same conversation. It's not going to happen. It's a character dangling in front of us that had never actually come to be. And as far as the whole thing about deserve, I mean, maybe our ancestors deserved it if you were actually a slave. But now, almost 200 years later, I don't think that word is appropriate. 
But do you think that in some ways that black, you know, descendants of slave, enslaved people uh, do deserve some sort of compensation only because it set us back so many years? So when you think about the racial wealth gap and things like that, doesn't it seem like this might be something to help put us on the trajectory to sort of catch up with white people? I don't think it's really going to help because even if it was actually passed, where's the money going to come from? Tax money? All they're going to do is print and spend the same way they did with the stimulus. And now we see what the result is, 24% higher chicken, beef, pork, everything else in the store. You can make a lateral move for what reason? No reason. At the end of the day, we're Americans. No, take advantage of that. Be an American citizen. Make some of yourself rather than looking at the past and saying why you're not where you want to be. Hey, this, this right here couldn't be perfectly more despicable. My man is sitting behind with a 1776 flag. He ain't never been tarred and feathered. He ain't never had to represent soldiers. He ain't never been taxed representation. But he's sitting here playing tricks with times and saying, that, hey, you, the Senate of African slaves, you are going far back in the path talking about the 18th. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada ba ba ba. At participating McDonald's. In the 60s, but I think that I can have individual clout and individual credibility. I see what all the paraphernalia around him. I'm sure he know about all about the Joe, Joe Biden co-authored, you know, 1990 some crime bills. We would say that black people disproportionately were impacted by the those crime bills. It was state well, wait, the people who who wanted that? that? Who wanted that crime bill? It was us. It was the black community. Hey. Please save our streets from the crack, from the violence. We wanted it, and he did it. That's why we voted no, for this, him. This, this, that's this, why, that's why we voted for him with Obama. We voted for him again violence. this time. This is not a negation of state section violence. This right here sounds like victim blaming, but even if you're correct, it does not negate that the crime bill was passed by individuals that's supposed to be giving us our general welfare. Let me get to Anthony consciously. Anthony, what, what is the solution? I mean, what form of reparations would you support? Nothing, really. Because Nothing. people wow. come, people come to this country. Not, I don't I don't support anything because really we're here as American citizens. Everybody wants to come here. They want to risk their life, their freedom, everything to come here. They want to spend a lot of money, five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars, come over here with an illegal coyote. They want to spend the money to come over here with zero dollars to generate money. See this iPhone right here? It wasn't even a thing up until just a few years ago. People create new wealth, new. Business all the time. I don't get how you can historically sensationalize the freedom of 1776 and say that that part of the past is good and permissible while literally chastising your own people for your individual gain. I would call that, you know, respectfully, sucker shit. We recognize that there is a long legacy politically, socially, hey, economically. I'm, I'm a proud American, as oh, are you. You, you don't want to leave this country. I don't want to leave this country. We're proud Americans. Hey, hey, How about hey, that? Hey, hey, listen, fam, listen, fam. You can shut his job and you, you can shut his job on Revolt TV all you want to, cuz, but I guarantee you, you're not gonna get picked. You're well, this is picked. obviously a very spirited debate, and I'm sure we could go on and on and on. We'll have it again for sure. We'll bring you both back and make sure we continue this discussion. Consciously, Anthony, thank you so much for joining us here on Revolt Black News Weekly. We'll be right back.
Hollywood showing Jennifer Lewis some well-deserved love as she earned her star on the Walk of Fame in Los Angeles. Welcome back, guys. I'm Kennedy Rue with this week's Entertainment Remix. We're on the ground as Jay-Z and Tamika Mallory take on social justice. But first, it's Diddy's way or no way as he celebrates a big anniversary. It's kind of hard with you not around it's 25 years this week that Diddy released his landmark album, No Way Out. It spawned the blockbuster hit, I'll Be Missing You, which was inspired by the death of the notorious B.I.G. The song featured his wife, Faith Evans, as well as the group 112. Tell me how that came about. How did you guys end up getting on that track? Wow, so 112, we were always studio rats, uh, as they would say it, always in the studio. And one of the one of the things that we benefit off of being in the studio a lot of the times was Puff would just come in and say, hey guys, I need y'all. And we'd go from one room to the next, whether that was us writing for someone he was producing for, or that's just getting on a hook that he was recording with. And uh, we knew that as a company and as a family, we wanted to do a song that was to, uh, just to shine light on just missing big and paying tribute and uh, homage to his life. When you guys were in the studio recording this, did you know how big of a hit it was gonna end up being? I think we all felt that the record was gonna be a huge record, mainly because of what it was designed to do. It was designed to uh, really pay tribute to our fallen brother, but also it became an anthem for people all over the world. You know, and Puff said it best. He said, this goes out to those who've lost a loved one. And then I just never forget, one day Puff comes into our room and he's like, yo, I need y'all. And we go in there and we just hear the every step I take. I'll Be Missing You was the first rap song ever to debut on top of the singles charts. And it was produced by Stevie J shortly after Biggie died. I remember Faith was in there crying, 112 was crying, Puff was crying. Man, a few hours later, we had a masterpiece in our hands. Derek D. Angeletti was the executive producer of No Way Out, which sold over 7 million copies. What kind of impact do you think No Way Out had on the future of hip hop and the trajectory that the sound was going? In my humble opinion, No Way Out was a testament to longevity. It was a testament to collaboration. It was a testament to vision. Along with Life After Death and along with a lot of other albums that we did and a lot of other projects that I myself was a part of, the, the goal was to make records that long outlast us. How did everybody come together to kind of lift each other up in spirits? Well, we came together um, at that time. It was a trying time for obviously everybody and of course, obviously, um, and he wanted to quit. You know, he had the heavy D-deaths. We had a lot of things go on in between those. And, you know, it was just a trying time. And so the original album was called Puffy and the Good, Puff Daddy and the Goodfellas. That was the original album. But one day, because we were friends, we went to Howard University together. We, um, we had a one-on-one -on -one just in a room because he wanted to quit and everybody was trying to convince him not to. 
So we had a one-on-one and you know, I'm a, I'm a year older than him. So I just basically say, bros, we didn't come this far to come this far. So, and there's no way out. We got to do it. Diddy mentored Usher when he was first starting out. And in 1997, he brought him on as an opening act on the No Way Out tour. Um, I actually heard that you were sent to live with Diddy when you were 14. Can you talk to me a little bit about that experience and what you learned from him in that process? I think it taught me being in New York City with Diddy and being around the artists of that time, rather it was Jodeci or I'll Be Sure, or even the hit makers of that time, um, Faith Evans. It was a culture, and I felt like they were ushering me in. Right, right. You know, being able to see how artists did it and what was, you know, really intended, you know, uh, for success. I learned that you gotta grind to get it in this industry, and I watched that man grind. So every bit of recognition that he's being get that he's been getting and celebration for his career, I think it's well deserved. And he is an inspiration to me. These days, Usher is electrifying audiences with his residency at Dobie Live at Park MGM in Vegas, and I was there opening night. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it yet, but you actually get up close and personal with the audience. Thank you. Why was that so important that you did that? Oh no, please, spoil it. Let them know <laughs> what you saw and how incredible it was yes. and what an immersive experience it was. Yes. You're immersed uh, in this experience that allows you to go on a journey with me, to go places that uh, these songs were created in. You know, I take you to Atlanta in a strip club. I take you to a skating rink. I take you all of these different places and and uh, and celebrate all of the the different layers and the genres and things that I've been able to experiment with throughout the years. And I have to ask because it is so high energy. What's the workout regimen? I mean, are you chugging protein shakes? Are you in the gym pumping iron? Like, how do you get in shape for a show like this? But I'll tell you this: the work goes into putting together a show like this, you know? And it's not easy. I do a, a, a great deal of uh, meditating to be able to, you know, center myself around it because it's coming from all different directions. I'm skating. Yeah, I have to definitely engage myself. I, I, I actually prepare myself like a, an athlete. Now back to Diddy. He gets an assist from Tiffany Haddish, Soraya, and his sons Quincy, Justin, and Christian in the new video for his Bryson Tiller collab, Gotta Move On. The song has been streamed over 40 million times worldwide. As for other new music, Kodak Black released a new video for Usain Boo, NBA Youngboy dropped a new song called I Don't Talk, and Little Uzi Vert unleashed two new songs, Space Cadet and I Know. This weekend in Miami, Kid Cudi headlines opening night of the Rolling Loud Festival. He replaces Kanye West, who dropped out. Future and Kendrick Lamar headlines Saturday and Sunday. Jay said I got the thumb. In New York on Saturday, Yo Gotti and Charlemagne the God will appear at Rock Nation's United Justice Coalition's inaugural social justice summit. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Jay-Z is on the advisory board, as is Until Freedom co-founder Tamika Mallory. 
when I partner with uh, Team Rock and they also find other artists and individuals to help us spread the message, then we are able to help families and hopefully secure justice because that's what this is all about. Yes, we want to make sure that their names stay in the media. We want to make sure that people don't forget them, that they don't go unnoticed. But at the end of the day, we're fighting for justice. We're fighting to change laws. We're fighting to ensure that people are protected so we don't have the uh, the Ahmad Arbery's and the Breonna Taylor's and the Tanisha Chappelle's and names go on and on continuing to happen in our society. Now we head overseas for the latest developments in the ongoing trial of WNBA star Brittany Griner and Drake's brunch with the international police as we go black all over the world. Now to Sweden. As the hashtag Freak Drake trends on Twitter, the Honestly Nevermind artist team denied he had been taken into custody. However, three days later, Drake confirmed in a vacation dump posted on Instagram that he was indeed detained by Swedish police. The document was issued by the Public Prosecutor's Office for Sweden's National Police Board. The notice lists detainees' rights and notes and interrogation will be held. You could crack the code. Next, we turn our attention to Russia and the Free Britney Griner movement. How could she feel like America has her back? Like, I would be feeling like, do I even want to go back to America if I'm... I've been gone over 130 days, and, and I felt like it's been zero effort. And Griner's fourth day in the courtroom, her team presented a letter stating she was prescribed medical cannabis for chronic pain due to multiple ankle injuries back in 2020. I will emphasize again the commitment of the United States government at the very highest levels to bring home safely Brittany Griner and all U.S. citizens wrongfully detained. Griner told the court she accidentally packed vape cartridges carrying less than a gram of cannabis oil, not intending to break Russian law. I can't imagine what she's going through. And I pray every single day that the people that are in high ups are doing what they need to do to get her home. As we reach over 150 days that she's been in custody, President Joe Biden signed an executive order to bring home hostages and wrongfully incarcerated detainees. Now to Haiti. Just over a year after President Jovenel Moise was assassinated, gang-led terror has spread throughout the country. It is a sad day, but this is an opportunity for the, uni- for, for, for the country to be united. Gangs continue to expand territories, even taking over the nation's courts, causing crime to be at an all-time high and forcing thousands of citizens to flee. It's not Haitian fighting with, with another country. It's the same Haitian fighting with Haitian for what? For money. President Moise's widow, Martine, continues to demand justice. And the fate of Haiti is uncertain. Many are concerned that authorities have failed to identify the more than 40 people behind the assassination, and the nation's presidential seat remains empty. All right, keep it right here. There's much more Revolt Black News Weekly after the break. My name is Kendrick Ransom, a former Sheikh. 
I'm the farmer at Golden Organic Farm. I'm also the vice president of Freedom Organization. I currently operate on about six acres of land. We have a two acre uh, intensive market garden. Uh, and I raise my animals on about four acre wood lot where we keep them in rotational pastures. Our family farm has up to about 100 acres that we're able to constantly use and to make money off of. Farmers have to be creative these days in order to really keep their operations going, whether they want to just raise vegetables or whether they want to have both vegetables and livestock. Me personally, I have to have to have those multiple streams um, of income on the farm. Um, that way we're able to keep going. A lot of our vegetables are seasonal and the meats as well. So we have to keep everything in a nice rotation. That way we're constantly bringing in revenue for the farm. I market and sell my products through various creative ways. For instance, we're working on a, a Black farm tour uh, that's supporting Black farmers in our community. So being able to create new creative strategies to help support our local farmers is ultimately that's giving me the motivation and giving me the leverage to, to be able to market my produce, uh, to market my farm. Black farmers have been discriminated against throughout. So it's constantly how do we find ways to advocate for farmers to get what's been deserved, you know, for over the last 100, 200 years. I talk about land ownership, you know, the, the challenges that we face as black farmers of, you know, not having the adequate land ownership that we need in order to grow food on a certain scales uh, to produce not only on a local community level, but on a regional and national level as well. Uh, so once we begin to have more land ownership, you know, that was going to ultimately help Black families here in America. What I think will help the next generation of Black farmers the most is advocating for them, listening to them, seeing what they need, seeing how we can help them, and also help providing them with the resources that they need, the technical assistance, connecting them with the federal programs, and keeping your hand on them along the journey. I have noticed a huge interest in young Black Americans as far as agriculture, because they're starting to be more conscious. You know, they're starting to get more connected to what, what they really feel. And a lot of that stems from the land. A lot of them, they are seeing it as a trend, but not just a trend, but it's our culture. So we are getting back to our culture, getting back to our roots and realizing how agriculture plays a big part in our culture. Before we go, we shine a spotlight on a brave 14-year-old who is still going viral for keeping it unapologetically real. Nayara Tamga took on a Grand Rapids, Michigan City Council meeting and read a room full of adults after her friend was shot. Her honest and passionate delivery is what makes her our revolutionary of the week. I don't want to sit here and I don't want to have to beg you to stop killing people. An emotional young voice heard at the heart of social justice. I don't trust any of you. I don't trust any of the police officers because you have shown time and time again that we cannot trust you. Naira Taminga, an activist and poet, demands answers from Grand Rapids police following the death of Patrick Laoya. Frustrated can't even begin how absolutely terrified I am to live here. Patrick, a 26-year-old refugee from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, was fatally shot in the back of the head by Officer Christopher Shure of the Grand Rapids Police Department during a traffic stop. Every single story about, you know, police brutality, about black people being murdered, it's, it's heartbreaking, but it was so scary to think of how close it was to where I lived, of how close it was to where I've grown up my whole life, where 
my cousins or my little brothers growing up. I mean, I just overall was just terrified. Great. Stop! If convicted of murder, Shore could be sentenced to life in prison. I remember just watching the video and just in my head just being like, please, please. Because the second that you see the video, the second that, you know, I saw the first two seconds of it, I just was, what was running through my mind is just, please let this man go home to his family. And, you know, he didn't get that opportunity. The incident hit home. Nyaira and her classmates hitting the streets, demanding action from city officials. Nyaira says she's just getting started with the movement. And it's been kind of eye-opening to see, like, the amount of people who are, for what I'm talking about, are coming and expressing what I feel and kind of allowing me to share it with just more people than those eight adults sitting in front of me. I see a political hopeful to shake things up. You go, Nayara. Yeah, Kennedy, she is definitely giving future attorney vibes, right? <laughs> well done. That's all for us. We'll see you next time. Later. stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Bada -ba -ba -ba. At participating McDonald's.